passage is 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 2, 4. For our boast is this, the testimony, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been yes and has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of all of you, of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. So everybody doing okay? Good, good. Um, if you did not have a chance to grab one of the scripture journals, um, do this, uh, grab one. If, if you want to slip in the back and grab one or slip up your hand, um, then we'd love to give you one. Um, just if you're, if you're a guest, obviously take that um, and allow that to be our gift from us to you. And um, if you're a partner here, just... Um, consider donating five bucks to that. Um, but man, those are so great to be able to follow along in this book um, and any book that we do, be able to jot notes along the way um, and to be able to save that uh, for your, your future joy. Um, and so I've just found a lot of joy in using those in my regular study, preparing sermons and whatnot. So um, feel free to grab one of those. So we are trekking our way here through this book. If you're just joining us, um, we're in this series um, called Light of the Gospel, and we are uh, looking at 2 Corinthians. And so still in chapter 1 today, um, but we're finishing it up and kind of going right into a little bit of chapter 2 as well. And, uh, and so let's begin. Have you ever been wrongfully accused? Ever been wrongfully accused of something? 
Well, that's exactly what happened to Paul and what he's addressing here. What happens when despite your sincere behavior, your character is called into question? And then what do you do to address those who accuse you? What is your knee-jerk reaction in that? Paul gives us a really great example. He really does here. And as we've already mentioned, Paul was under intense scrutiny by the Corinthian church um, for the legitimacy of his apostleship. Um, so there were three main crowds that Paul was addressing at this time. And those, and those three crowds, crowds were this, uh, those who affirmed his apostleship, uh, those who did not, and then a kind of subcategory of that second group, uh, the false prophets or, uh, or the super apostles, as he calls them in chapter 11. We'll get there. Um, and the, these false prophets, super apostles, were kind of bringing this dissension mainly. Um, but there was also these questions in their mind. So apparently Paul had changed his mind a couple times with the Corinthian church. Um, during his third missionary journey, the main point of this trip was for Paul to collect money for the church in Judea. And he had told the Corinthians in his first letter, in uh, chapter 16, verse 5 through 7, that he was going to travel to Corinth after he visited the churches in Macedonia. And he wanted to spend a considerable amount of time with them. And he says even like, you know, hopefully for the winter, hopefully for the season that I can spend this whole time with you. Well, apparently, he had changed his mind between that letter and his second letter um, to not stay for one long visit, but to make two shorter visits, which he will, we'll see um, why here in a minute. And then after this, it seems as though he changes his mind again. And so the Corinthians began to become suspect to Paul and his intentions and why he would change his mind so quickly. Surely the unchanging and eternal God of the universe would not be so inconsistent, can we really believe Paul has authority? Can we really believe Paul is a messenger of God? And this is where Paul begins his address to address these claims. So read with me in chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Don't be caught off guard here by Paul's usage of the word boast. He's not boasting in his flesh. He often uses, actually in this whole letter, he uses this term a lot. Here, particularly, um, it's actually literally translated glory. For my glory is this. He simply means this, that his confidence is in the fact that he has behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul was single-minded. We've talked about this often in regards to Paul and his mission and what he did. His, he was single-minded in his purpose. And it was to adorn the gospel, to make Jesus' story, what he has done for us, to shine, 
to make it look great in whatever means and wherever he went. This was his single purpose. But what motivated Paul to do this? What motivated Paul in this regard and and how too should we be motivated? So if we look at this passage, Ryan, can you put verse 12 on there? It says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. We behaved in the world with simplicity, godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. This is so typical Paul's fashion to have um, all of these uh, prepositional phrases just lumped together, right? He just loves these for, by, you know, toward, and, and all of these. And so if we were just to take off the majority of them, this is what we would have left. For our boast is this, we behaved. We boast in how we behaved. Now, obviously, that's not enough for really to understand what Paul is getting at. And so if we add in really the, the most important ones here, with simplicity and God's godly sincerity, how do we behave? We behave with simplicity and godly sincerity. How? On here, by the grace of God. Our boast is this. We behaved with simplicity, godly sincerity. How? By the grace of God. Our boast is this, we behaved by the grace of God. We behaved by the grace of God. There's nothing that Paul can boast in apart from the grace of God in his life. But how does grace produce this type of motive in Paul? What does grace do for Paul to motivate him to perform in such an action, to address the Corinthians in the way he does? Church, the gospel informs us that we do not need to hide anything, but we can walk confidently in godly sincerity before others. The gospel informs us that we can be transparent, that we can walk in openness. How does it do this? Because because Jesus has paid for all of your sins, You don't have to be worried about being condemned before others because Jesus was already condemned for you on the cross. You don't have to worry about being scrutinized in your behavior because maybe it's due or maybe it's not. But the one who is just and the justifier is Jesus. Earthly wisdom, he draws his comparison. He says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Earthly wisdom leads to self-motivation. So this is like the wisdom of just our world, right? Humanism, everything that I know is what I can see and what I can feel and what I can touch and what is apparent to me. This wisdom leads to just self-motivation. I got to get what is mine while I have the time and I can compromise to get it because what else is there? It also leads to self-protection, to saving face. That I can't be transparent because I have to protect my image. But by the grace of God, grace of God leads us to this. Transparency. No ulterior motives in our actions or hidden agendas. Instead of self-protection, it leads to self-denial. And we adorn the gospel in this. We adorn the gospel. All believers, pastors, and I should take heed of Paul's example in this. To live um, with simplicity and with sincerity, excuse me. Think about this. Think about what honesty does to adorn the gospel. How does just being honest adorn the gospel? 
Now think about what deceitfulness does to undermine it. Living underhandedly. It says it, it shrouds the gospel. Any type of deceit in our actions, it shrouds the beauty of Jesus and what he has done. It shrouds it in the sense of like, that's, it covers it up. That's all you can see is the deceit now. And the beauty of the gospel has not been allowed to shine. Paul knows this. And so he's saying, I have, what I wrote to you is what you read. What you read is what I wrote. There's nothing in between there. But there's more at stake than just simply the gospel being shrouded, but the implications of that. What's the implication of it? Paul is plain in his words to the Corinthians because he knows their souls are at stake in this. There's all our, our souls are at stake here. Now, Paul, he was an apostle, as it says in the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God appointed, Jesus appointed Paul as an apostle and a messenger. The word apostle is like literally translated a a messenger or a carrier of information, like a ship that's carrying a letter across the seas. He is a carrier of God's gospel and good news and word of God to the people. And so if this is the will of God and the people reject Paul as an apostle, then it's not too much to say that they reject the one who appointed him as an apostle. So Paul is saying, church, listen to me. I am for you. If you reject me, then you reject Christ. Because my words are not my own words. Paul knew that he was going to have to give an account for every one of the people under his care. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us to uh, be subject to your leaders for knowing that they are keeping watch over your souls as ones who have to give an account all of us will stand naked before God and our deeds will be exposed one day. Jesus says it this way. He says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. There, was a, there will be a day when there will be this penetrating judgment on all creation and all people will stand before our King. And this will be particularly terrible for the pastor or the minister who has behaved in an underhanded way. There will be a, this penetrating judgment on all the motives and all the deeds of the pastor and his rewards will be made known to all. Tabiti and Anyabwili, you can look up the exact pronunciation of that, but I believe it's how you say it. Tabiti Anyabwili, um, he says it this way. He says, the unfaithful minister would be tried for his treasonous neglect of the souls of the people. And the unfaithful congregation would stand to hear the pastor's denouncement of their spiritual apathy and hard-heartedness. Paul has his day in mind. He knows this day is coming. I pray, church, that you know that your pastors here at Crosspoint, man, we do not step into this role by worldly wisdom but with great trepidation and great fear and great sincerity, there is a weight that we must carry for your souls and the eternity to which they are destined to. 
It's what provokes us to be hard with you when we want to cower. It's what provokes us to be gentle when we want to lash out. Is that we are keeping watch over your souls. There was a pastor in the 18th century by the name of Lemuel Haynes. Have you heard of Lemuel Haynes? I hadn't heard of him, but there's a great book, uh, actually by Tabiti, called The Faithful Preacher. And he talks about Lemuel. And Lemuel in one of his um, sermons, he says this, the day of judgment is designed to be a comment on all other days. At that time, God's government of the world and the conduct of all toward him will be publicly investigated that the equity of divine administration may appear conspicuous before the assembled universe. It is called a day when the Son of Man is revealed. The honor of God requires that matters be publicly and particularly attended to, that evidences be summoned at this open court. The honor of God requires it. That man who wrote that was the first African-American ordained by any religious body in the U.S. He was also the first African-American to be awarded an honorary master's degree. He served for 40 years in the ministry, 30 of which to an all-white congregation, which we can understand is just an unheard of thing at the time. Haynes was a devout man of God to his congregation and to God, preaching faithfully from the scriptures and defending the doctrines of the faith publicly. Yet after a five-year-long dispute, he was voted out of the pastorate. In his farewell sermon to them, he titled this to his church. And his title of the sermon was The Suffering, Support, and Reward of Faithful Ministers, illustrated. He says this, The flower of my life has been devoted to your service. And while I lament a thousand imperfections which have attended my ministry, yet if I am not deceived, it has been my hearty desire to do something for the salvation of your souls. What stirred Haynes and Paul the most was this day that they would stand before God. Anticipation of the meeting of the Lord Jesus. It is this that influenced Paul's decisions towards his people and how he taught them. But despite this, despite this, his character was called in the question. So again, the question is this, what do we do when this happens? From the text today, I hope you see that being eager, as Paul says elsewhere, to maintain the unity of the bond of peace in the body. To do, to, to do this, if this is our goal, then we should move towards each other for each other's faith and for each other's joy. So point one, be committed to each other's faith. How do we be committed to each other's faith? How did Paul do this? Read with me in verse 15 through 17. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul's rhetorical question here, he, he answers in a minute. But the point here is this, that because Paul was committed to the church, because Paul was committed to the faith of the church, his plans had to. So yes, he changes his plans, but his commitment doesn't waver. And what he's saying here is, church, 
Church, I wanted to give you a twofold experience of God's grace. What does he mean by that? This would give them an opportunity to actually have um, two times to be able to give to this collection for the church in, in um, Judea. And so while some may say to him, Paul, you're just trying to rob us. You just want more money from us. He's like, no, no. I, I, he, Paul knew that in the sacrificial giving that the Corinthians would do and participate in, that they would then see what God would do with that money in the church in Judea. They would glorify God and their faith in God would be stirred. That's Paul's motivation here. He said, I want to give you a twofold experience of God's grace. Paul was committed to the faith of the church in Corinth so much that he did not want to deprive them of this. So hear me, church, like just because giving is hard doesn't mean that it's a burden. And Paul's purpose here is to say, like, this should be your joy. Paul knows this. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul's change of plans is evidence of God's faithfulness. So here's really where he's getting at with this. Like, he's like, I wanted you to experience this means of grace in your giving because I wanted you to see how faithful God is. How faithful God, a faithful God can use even you in your giving to produce a joy in someone else. This is the faithfulness of God experienced in the church. In verse 19, he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all matters of life, all events in life. And he can and he will use all means to draw us to him, to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. And there's always something deeper that's happening than what we can see and what we can perceive and what we, what we, what we see around us, right? There's always something deeper that's happening. The church sees Paul just being flippant and vacillating and being indecisive in what he's going to do. And, and Paul's like, guys, can you, can you trust in a God who is over even my decisions? Can you put your trust in this God? John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things when we in our life may be aware of three of them, right? Like this is the God we serve. And what we know is just like, what's here? And God is saying, I'm orchestrating this, guys. I'm over this. Don't be so concerned. There's a, always this unseen grace. It's this unseen grace. Paul's like, is, this, is God's sovereignty all determined on my decision-making here? No. It's God who, in Acts 17, tells us that he determines the boundaries of our dwelling place. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is overseeing all of this church. Is God big enough to be sovereign even over these? And, and he's saying, yes, he is. He is. Because 
all of the promises that God has given you all throughout the Old Testament, Corinth, all that, that you have heard me preach to you, all of them find their yes in Christ and you are in Christ. All the promises are true, because, not because of me, but because Christ is true, because Christ is good, because Christ is sovereign. They find their yes in him. They're always yes. You don't have to doubt it, ever. So if this is coming down to a matter of your faith in Jesus or not, please let me stop you and say, don't look to me. God is still faithful. He's still faithful. Essentially what he's saying is that even if I'm wrong, God is never wrong, church. Romans 8, 28, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purposes. And Paul voices his amen. He says, and we utter amen. This is just his yes. God, whatever you will, it's for your glory. All of this is for your glory. So what does this mean for us? When we see it this way, when we see the sovereignty of God, when we have a high view of who he is, then you know, we don't have to become so, like we don't have to feel so suspect of each other all the time. Right? You follow me in that? And, and let me be clear, this does not mean that we don't call out sin. It just means check your heart. Check your motive. Is your commitment to, when you call out sin, is your commitment to that person's faith in Christ? If it's not, then check your heart. Here's a little heart check. Don't constantly read between the lines. Are you always looking for sinister motives in people? It's hard sometimes, right? Be slow to believe accusations on someone from an outside, from the outside, especially if that person um, being accused has a history that shows otherwise, right? Be slow to believe accusations. May we grow in maturity in this. I see it in us, I know it, but man, I just also know it's hard. Remember this, in verse 21, 22, he says, that church, it is God who establishes us, it's God who anoints us, and it is God who puts a seal on us. This is all about him. This is all for his glory anyways. Don't forget that. We'll come back to these verses here at the end, but will you have a faith big enough to believe that no matter what happens to you or how you are treated, that God is still the one who is in control of all of this? Point number two. Or the second thing we can learn from Paul here is to be committed to each other's joy. Be committed to others' joy. After he left um, Corinth the first time, uh, there was this word of contention in Corinth. So he had planned to go twice, right? And he went the first time, and then he left to go back to Macedonia, and he was going to come back. But then he got word from Timothy that there was this contention that had risen in the church, and it was just a really volatile time. And, and it was somewhat so when he left already, and then it just kind of increased. And so um, scholars just believe that this is where he changed his mind here. And he says, this is where he says here um, in uh, verse 23, uh, but I call to God witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. So Paul decides 
you know what? I could go back. I could crack the whip. I could lash out at him. And he would have the, the right to do so. He would be in the right in doing that because they were wrong, just flat out. But Paul's decision here is to say this, and then he continues in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So Paul decides instead to spare the church of this harsh rod of discipline, and, he continue, and then he writes it to them under this premise that he's not the lord of their faith, I'm not the Lord over your faith. No one's the Lord over your faith except the Lord, right? But what I am and what we are to each other are partners in joy, working together towards joy in Christ. And so Paul says this. He says, we work with you for your joy. Paul exhibits this like humble restraint this humble restraint. Although he could go, he decides, no, what's my commitment here? My commitment is to their faith and to their joy. So he restrains himself. He decides to write instead. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He writes to them. That's why we have this letter. But he doesn't go there in order to stir up more unrest and unpeace because he knows just their attitude towards him. And even though he could be vindicated in going, he decides not to. That's like the biggest word for me. Like even though Paul could go and be vindicated before others publicly, he decides, no, I'll write to the church privately. Verses one through five, he says in chapter two, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I write as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Can you hear Paul's motive in this? Paul's motive is like, man, I'm, he's, he's even writing it with tears in his eyes. And he's anguishing over this, the fact of the, the current state of the church and where they're at and their feelings toward him. But he restrains himself. The gospel calls us to a partnership and joy, church. This means that there may be times where we have to restrain ourselves for the joy of someone else so that they might find joy in Christ. My joy would be the joy of you all, he says. Even in the midst of their rebellion, Paul affirms his love for them. Church, I love you. Don't give up on this. So here's another heart check. Don't withdraw from difficult and fickle people. Don't withdraw from them. Press in for their joy. And don't be too quick to vindicate yourself. Be willing to endure what you don't deserve for the sake of peace in the body. Be willing to endure what you don't deserve for the sake of peace in the body. That's Paul's example in this. 
You know what? A humble restraint may be the means by which God uses to lead someone else to repentance. Paul's a great example, but do you know we have an even greater example of this? I'll give you a clue. It starts with J. Ends with ease us. <laughs> Man, these principles can be applied in an exceedingly greater way to Christ. Because Jesus was misunderstood and did not shrink back, Paul could be bold and you and I can be. Because Jesus was wrongly accused and didn't seek to vindicate himself, Paul didn't need to, nor do you or I. Because Jesus is our faith and joy, we can and should be for others as well. Because Jesus is patient with us, we should be patient towards others. Because Jesus extends mercy to his murderers and pleads forgiveness for them to the Father. Ought we not to? Consider the fact that you're even here now, that I'm standing here today. Is this not the mercy of God that we are here? Is it not? Do we deserve to be still here and God to be withholding his final day of judgment? The word of God tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and you should know that the Lord is being patient with you that he is withholding his right hand of judgment, his just hand of wrath, because he loves you. But that day is coming quickly. That day is coming quickly when he will come and all will stand before this judgment. And it will be penetrating and there will be no escaping it. God is committed to your faith and your joy, and the measure by which this commitment can be found is through Christ. Our debt was great, and the interest just kept getting larger, but God satisfied all accounts of wrong when Jesus went to the cross for you. You didn't earn this. You were given it. So what is grace, and how does this grace motivate us? How does Paul say again that it is by grace that I behaved? It is this understanding, and this was given to me by a friend here, and I, and I, I think it's really good that grace is not this nebulous concept, right? But when we understand grace, it is this, um, put the one about judgment, mercy, and grace, right? Judgment is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. And R.C. Sproul, he says, grace is unmerit. He's made that word up, but it's good. We don't merit our way to grace. Grace is the opposite. Grace is unmerit. You didn't deserve it. It's unmerited. It's not even like you were somewhat good enough and then, and, and then, and then God was like, yeah, okay, you can have it, you know. It was completely unmerited. There was, it, would, it was, you want to know, like my kids say, that's not fair, right? 
No, it's not fair. It's not fair. And then uh, I, was, I was mentioning that to, um, we were over Ryan Walker's house and Carrie's house, and, um, and Carrie was saying that uh, Ryan always responds to his kids with, yeah, Jesus dying on the cross was not fair either, you know? And it's true, though. It's true. Man, we, we so often seek this kind of fairness, but, man, life's not fair. Thank God it's not fair. Thank God that Jesus didn't pursue fairness, right? He pursued justice. This is the reason the Bible speaks about grace in this economic terms. It's because we're bankrupt before him. We have nothing. We don't have the means to pay our way out of debt that we owe him in our sin. And so in verse 22, we read, he said that um, he also put a seal on us and give and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This word guarantee is a legal term. It's down payment. It's the first installment. It's a commitment to say, I'm following through with what I've said. He gave us his spirit as this down payment to say that I'm carrying you all the way through to the end on this. I'm committed to this. I'm committed to this. Worldly wisdom grasps and leeches, but grace releases. Ben, you can come and uh, get ready to lead us in, in song. Worldly wisdom grasps and leases, but grace releases. Grace releases. It says, whatever I am, I am in Christ, and that is enough. This means that showing up on a Sunday morning, going to our community groups, should never have anything to do with the people that we're around to say, like, whether we like these people or don't like these people, right? God forbid that we come to a place where we're just like, man, I just don't, I'm not going because I don't like these people. That's not what it's about. We're not a social club. We are the blood-bought people of Jesus. We're redeemed to display a radical type of fellowship. It's radical, like, you know, like any, everything that we're talking about this morning, you know, don't believe for a minute that this is just somehow even in line with world. Like, it's radical. We can admit that. But Jesus has given us the means to follow through with it. Church, I see the evidences of God's grace in you. I do. Slowly but steadily, God is refining us to be the beautiful picture the beautiful picture of redemption that he has purchased for us. May we move towards one another out of a deep commitment to each other's faith and to each other's joy by grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're gonna sing now. Um, we're gonna sing this song called Abba. And we just wanted to, us to reflect upon the love of our Father to us in Christ. And the verses here that you are more real, you're more real, you're more near than everything I perceive. So may we believe that today in this unseen grace, right? This is when we sing this, we're understanding the unseenness of everything, the reality of our faith is that God is for us and so we can be for others. All right, let's sing. <laughs>